today's reading is Nehemiah chapter 3, starting at verse 1. We'll be skipping to chapter 4 at some point during chapter 3. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hesanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Barakiah, the son of Meshizabel, made repairs, and next to him, Zadok, son of Barna, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but the nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jashana gate was repaired by Jorada, son of Hesiah, and Meshulam, son of Besodea. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next, uh, next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Meronoth, places under the authority of the governor of the Trans-Euphrates. Uzael, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphiah, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumath, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashabnir, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Now, continuing on from chapter 4, verse 1, just across the page. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stone. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we built the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. 
but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall to the, at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. From that day on, Half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding, the spear, holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when we went for water. This is God's word. Uh, if we've not met, my name's Matt Fuller. Uh, I'm the vicar here. It'd be lovely to, uh, to say hi uh, afterwards. Uh, and if you are joining us today, it's a slightly strange bit of the Bible to jump in on, but let me pray, uh, and then we'll look at it together. Uh, great God and Father, we need to know that there is none like you. You are the one who made the stars, and there are more in the sky than we can possibly get our head around. You are the great God. Father, would you once again lift our eyes to look to you? And would we also know what we can do? We are not mighty, but we can plan. We can think. We can uh, be wise. Help us to do that, Father. Help us to have both those thoughts in our heads. As we turn to the scriptures now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, it really is that, it's that combination that uh, we're looking at, particularly in uh, uh, chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Nehemiah. Or as uh, one commander once put it, trust God and keep your powder dry. Which apparently is uh, what Oliver Cromwell said to his troops uh, before battle one day. Um, did he say it? Who knows? It's one of those sort of things. Uh, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But it's a good one-liner, so it gets accredited to him. Trust God. We're going to battle. What do you need to do? Trust God, okay, and keep your powder dry, which has probably changed slightly in idiom. Uh, for him, it meant your gunpowder. If you're going to fire a gun, you need it dry. If it's wet, it'll sort of clump up. Your gun is useless. Trust God and prepare really well. Trust God 
and think, plan responsibly, responsively to situations. Trust God and do everything you possibly can to give you, well, in his case, victory in battle. It's a good phrase. And in many ways, is a summary, uh, or, or there's the same attitude we see in Nehemiah, particularly in chapter 4. You just look at some of the single verses that uh, summarize that. Uh, so chapter 4 and verse 9, we prayed to our God, and we posted a guard day and night to protect us. We trusted God, and for goodness sake, we had someone on guard, obviously. We did both. Uh, or, or verse 14, he says, uh, just before they're probably going to have a fight, he says to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, verse 14, remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your families. I mean, do both. Verse 20, we get near the end. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Look, we've got our comms system sorted out. It's pretty basic. It's a trumpet. Um, but we've got our, you know, so listen out for the comms and God will fight. It's both. And in one sense, that should be obvious. If you're a Christian, you trust the Lord and you do what you can. But the interesting thing about the book of Nehemiah is it's in many ways one long worked example of that. And so in this, particularly when opposition comes in chapter 4, Nehemiah and Israel, they face ridicule and discouragement and it's all very demoralizing and there's threat and there's setback. But they do what they can and they trust the Lord and they just keep going. Everyone says that's the encouragement for you and for me. Now, if you are joining us today, it's an odd description in one sense. It's a building project in Jerusalem around about the year 445 BC. And um, even if you love history, that's probably not the first thing you ever read uh, as a child about a building project back then. The, the motivation for what's taking place, we've been told in chapters 1 and 2, uh, Nehemiah is upset or offended by the disgrace that's upon the people. Uh, and then last time we saw chapter 2, verse 17, he says, he goes to Jerusalem and says to the people, we need to rebuild the walls. I mean, it's good defensively if you've got strong defensive walls. It helps you when you're attacked. But the motivation is we'll no longer be in disgrace. So in one sense, this is a physical building project. They're knocking up a wall, but it's spiritually they're rebuilding the people. They're saying, let's go again in serving the Lord. We don't want to be his people bringing down the reputation of his name is what's taking place. And so as we read this today, the book of Nehemiah, there's plenty for you and for me to learn about growing the kingdom of Jesus, not brick by brick, but spiritually seeing his reign, seeing his rule, seeing his people grow. Plenty to learn in that. Chapters 3 and 4, slightly contrasting chapters, it's positive and sort of negative, but it gets there in the end. But uh, it's very simple, really. Everyone went to work, chapter 3, and then they persevered. That's it. So again, in terms of seeing the kingdom of Jesus grow, two little principles, everyone went to work and they just kept going. Let's have a look at them then. Uh, chapter 3, a little more briefly. Uh, everyone went to work. Now, um, we didn't have it all read, but even what we did have read, you might have thought this is not electric. 
Uh, it's just a long list of names. Where's the plot? Or where's the character development? How are they going to turn this one into a film? Well, they're probably not. It's like a very, very, very boring government report. Um, unless you like such things. Uh, but the point is, everyone's involved. Quite a simple point. Uh, so it starts, chapter 3 and um, verse 1. You don't need to know the geography. They start at the Sheep Gate, which is basically north, and they do a, um, a large anti-clockwise loop. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 32, they're back at the Sheep Gate. In other words, they built this bit and this bit and this bit. And this, like going around a clock. Um, they built this bit, 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 built this bit. And then they're done. Okay. Everyone did their job. And um, the, the phrase that is mildly obscured, but the phrase that comes up 40 times is, next to him was, next to them was, just beyond them was, next to them was, and it's just this gang and this family and these people and this, they all did it. They all got involved. It's a big building project, but no one's hired in the professionals. It's unskilled, unpaid citizens, and everyone does their job. So it starts off, chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests, Oh, the pen pushers, the sort of the effete intellectuals. Mm, gloves, um, mm, bricks. Mm. Uh, they did their job. Uh, that's why I think we get these details, like, for example, verse 8, Uziel, son of Haraiah, one of the goldsmiths. No, I just do, what do you call it, fine filigree? Well, no, what's that thing? Oh, I don't know. Um, you know, I just do fine art. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't lift bricks. Um, yeah, no, you do now, mate. Um, Han and I are one of the perfume makers. No, I make things smell nice. Well, make the walls smell nice and as you knock up some bricks and build some stuff. Can you? Everyone does their bit. Now, if we're going to highlight two things, maybe, maybe two things uh, uh, worth noting in particular. Uh, the first in, in chapter three is that um, everyone went to work. Well, you never get buy-in from everyone. Even here, the whole nation is motivated or the whole city is motivated, but not quite everyone. You get the bum note in chapter 5. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors, the idle nobility. Um, why is that? Pride. Well, they had a job. We got staff. For that, uh, I don't know. Probably more likely, chapter six, they're in the pay of the enemy, Sambalat and Tobiah. You get that at the end of chapter six, is probably uh, what's going place. But you never get everyone involved. Although there's a lovely detail you get a little later on in the chapter. These idle men of Tekoa, these idle nobles, they do nothing. But we are told a little later on in verse 27 of uh, chapter 3. Uh, next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section. So the nobles may have been bone idle, but the masses, oh, yeah, well, we can help out. We've done our job pretty quickly. Anyone says this just true? It's just true in church life. Just don't be surprised, I think, is, is the point here. Uh, some people sit on the fringes and are bone idle and do nothing, and uh, some people throw in and, and just make a massive contribution. I think that's just normal, is uh, what we're being reminded here. It's uh, sort of something about, I think it must be 20 years ago. Uh, I think the 
no one will remember this, so I think it's all right to say, uh, even those who are here. Uh, the first or second treasurer that was here at church. I remember on one occasion, you know, we were much smaller. The average age was about 16 years old in those days, you know. Uh, 20 years ago, so I must have been like 14. Um, uh, and, um, but uh, you know, we didn't have two pennies to really to rub together. I remember the, the, the treasurer at the time uh, to say, oh, I, I, I hate knowing who gives what. Because, you know, I guess you have a sort of guess. And some people are like first-year teachers. And they're so generous. And other people, they're like earning a decent wedge. And they're not involved at all. I just get really wound up by that. And, well, give thanks for those who make a massive contribution, financially or just in terms of hours. And just forgive those who do nothing and... Don't focus on them. Uh, give thanks. I mean, that's just normal. That's just normal in church life, I think. It's normal here. Don't be surprised by that. You never get buying from everyone. But more, I mean, the dominant note of the chapter is look, just look at the uniting power of a higher cause. The, the Israelites, they wanted to remove the shame upon them and their God, and that's what they're doing. Yeah, they're building walls for defense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they want to honor the Lord. Uh, they want his name to be lifted up. And I think in a church setting, we know that. The uniting power of a common cause, working together for the sake of Jesus, not just ourselves, it lifts us. We know that. Sometimes it's very intense. If you go on a Christian summer camp and you do a week of just working alongside people, it's really intense and exhausting, but you sort of, it's very obvious that the joy of working together for something more. Even in secular sense, I think you get a bit of that this week or the last two weeks as um, you know, the water wall coverage of, of the Queen's death and, and the plans and, and afterwards and the queue. Uh, and so many interviews on TV, just interviewing Joe Public, and the comment is, oh, isn't it amazing? Even in her death, the, the Queen has united the kingdoms. Um, you know, even the Scots seemed like positive. Uh, uh, you know, you know, that's why she died up there, wasn't it? She knew what she was doing. Um, uh, the, um, the different regions of the country, different races within the country uniting together. And there is, even in that secular sense, there's something that people recognize. There's a uniting power in a common grief in someone, in this case, greater, someone who demonstrated service and grace and duty. There's just something that brings people together for a fortnight. And then uh, we get off and go again. And I think even in that, you see just... Just a hint of what is in the heart of every human, that we're meant to find a uniting sense in one who is greater. Dare I say, obviously, Jesus, who demonstrated service and grace. We're meant to find common purpose in that. There's a joy in when we're able to do that. There's an echo in the hearts there. Everyone went to work. That's what you see, first of all, in uh, chapters three and four. Everyone. Everyone got involved by those pesky nobles of Tekoa. 
uh, everyone gets involved. But then chapter four, they persevered even through adversity. And you get a few things here, ridicule, defeatism, and threats. They persevered is uh, the point in chapter four. Uh, three little movements uh, within the chapter. They all begin when the enemy hears something. So chapter four, verse one, when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly uh, incensed. Now, if you've been here the previous week, Sambalat is the, the recurrent baddie uh, in the book of, um, of Nehemiah. But things are getting a bit more serious now. He, Sambalat is Samaritan, just no, the, north of uh, Jerusalem. He's the regional puppet master of power. He doesn't want this city growing in strength. He's allied himself with uh, Tobiah, who's just to the west, the Arabs to the south, and we're told then Ammon to the east, uh, uh, a little later in this chapter four, gets involved. So they're encircled, they're surrounded. But first thing that uh, Sambalat does is um, he ridicules. And this seems to go down well with uh, all his associates. So verse two, in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Now, there's an element of truth in all his mockery. What are those feeble Jews doing? Well, they were, to be honest, a pretty feeble bunch. Again, half of them are feet pen pushers who'd never done a day's work with their hands. They're going to rebuild the wall. Well, they offer sacrifices. What, what? They're just going to pray the stones up, are they? Those silly religious people just go, mm, let's just pray to God and the stones are going to move. Going to use the force. Um, is that how they think it's going to happen? Finish it in a day, will they? They have no idea what they've taken on. They'll go at it for a few days and go, oh, it's, oh, it's hard work, uh, and give up. And, you know, there's some sort of element to that. But ridicule. Just get back in your box, Nehemiah and the Israelites. You are feeble. Don't challenge the status quo, for goodness sake. Ridicule. Well, like pretty much every chapter here, uh, in response to that, Nehemiah prays. It's sort of psalm-like implication in one sense, verses uh, 4 and 5. Hear us, our God. We're despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them as plunder in a land of captivity. Don't cover up their guilt. Blot out their sins from your sight. They've thrown insults in the face of the builders. He does what the New Testament would do. He entrusts himself to God, no doubt. The prayer would go on if we read the details. Of course, what we'd love it is if they repented and joined us, O Lord. But he entrusts himself and the cause to the Lord. And then you get a very nice verse 6. Okay, we've been insulted and ridiculed. We've prayed. And then verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall. Till all of it's reached, it's half its height. The people work with all their heart. So we were ridiculed and we thought, oh, no, maybe they're right. And oh, Stop it. Don't listen to them. We prayed. But we just cracked on and we rebuilt. We just didn't give up. Then you get a bit of defeatism, though. It does come. Uh, morale does drop in uh, verses 7 to 14. You get the second time, verses 7 to 14, the, the, the enemies here. So verse 7, when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod, golly, they're surrounded when they heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, they were getting angry. And so the plan is, well, verse 8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So what do you do? Verse 9, we pray to our God, 
and we posted a guard night and day. We prayed and we acted. These waves of discouragement keep on coming, though. Verse 10, the people in Judah said, oh, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble. We cannot rebuild the wall. Now, most of us here, I mean, I don't want to tie you all with my brush, are a feet pen pushers in our occupation. There aren't many building site laborers uh, amongst us. You know, all strength to you if that's your trade. But um, my, my brief experience was a few months in my late teens. I was in Nicaragua helping build something and, you know, no machines. You had to mix the concrete with the, with the sand and everything, the water yourself. You do that yourself, just um, carrying bricks. Where's the forklift truck? Uh, you just do it physically, exhausting. You get up when the light comes, you go to bed when the light goes, and you sleep like a baby, which is always that misnomer because we know babies don't sleep. But anyway, you know, you just gonk. It is hard work. And so here... Well, morale is giving out a little bit versus we're never going to finish. It's just so much to do. We're never going to finish. And then more discouragement. Verse 11, our enemies said, Haha, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and we'll put an end to their work. Oh. And then the Jews who aren't actually helping us but live in the region, who live near them, came and told us 10 times over, yeah, thanks. Wherever you turn, they'll attack us. Thanks for your encouragement. Wherever you turn, they'll attack you. They're going to attack you. Yes, thank you for your encouragement. You're our friends, are you? Great. Can you just go and be a friend elsewhere? Because we don't need to be told 10 times. So what do they do? Well, Nehemiah plans sensibly, responsibly, just acts. Verse 13, therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest parts of the wall at the most exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. I looked things over. I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Two things. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And secondly, fight. Fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Find your strength in the Lord. Remember who he is. Remember he is the one who made every star in the sky. He is the one who can part a sea to save his people. Remember who he is and fight. Do you see again, Nehemiah brings together spiritual truth about who God is, the spiritual reality of what's going on in the world. And this is a very gritty detail. This, oh, the, these are the weakest parts of the wall. We'll put more people there. Fight. Tell you what, look into the eyes of your wives and your children and fight. Fight for them. So can you imagine how discouraging this would have been? I mean, verse 6, the wall is half built, it's going well, and then, do you know what? We are knackered now, we've done half of it. And, oh, we're going to get attacked. Oh, for goodness sake. How fearful they must have been at that point in time. But then you get a third little wave of hearing, uh, verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and the God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall each to our work. And this last section, if you've had sort of ridicule, defeatism and threat, this last one is just, it's just logistics, sort of thing that some people really like and most of us think is less exciting. But it's just the details of, of what they did. 
They go back to building the wall, but it's not the same as before because, well, verse 16, from that day on, half my men did the work, but the other half stand there. They've got the spears and shields and bows and armor, and and the officials are sort of overseeing it all. And Verse 17, those who carried the materials, they worked with one hand, but they held a weapon in the other hand. And every one of the builders had a sword strapped to his side as he worked. So everything's a bit slower now. They can't go at the same pace, but they've worked out a system to move it forward. We've got to build, but we've got to defend ourselves at the same time. Now, some will know this was a very a fam- a favourite uh, passage of the, the dominant preacher in the UK, really, in the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, you know, ten mile, no, five miles from here. The... Um, uh, dominated the scene. He was the one who sent everyone else into ministry. He was the sort of uh, utterly leading figure of the time. And his magazine that he'd send out across the nation was called, after Deut- uh, excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 4, The Sword and the Trowel. You need both. And he said, we ply the trowel to build the kingdom of Jesus. We wield the sword to defend the truth. Just need both at times if you want to see the kingdom of Jesus grow. And it's never enjoyable to have to defend, to engage in the debate for the truth, to say, actually, what was said publicly here, over here, is not true, and Jesus is unique in these ways, and this current mood on sexual ethics disagrees from the Bible, and what the church is doing in this arena is wrong. No one enjoys the fight. Can't we just get on with saying nice things about Jesus? Well, the Bible's realistic. You have to build and defend the truth. Those things often go hand in hand. But after all these sort of strategic or or logistical decisions are taken, you get verse 20. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. You need to know that. And the summary is verse 21. So we continued the work, half the men holding spears, from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time I said to the people, let every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. And neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards when we took off our clothes, each had his own weapon when they went for water even. In other words, we kept on. I tell you what, it was flipping hard work. Only half the people could build at any one time, the other half are defending. So everything's going more slowly. There's more anxiety. Are we going to be under attack? More exhaustion. Work from the first light to last light. No time to take off our clothes. It's a slightly odd detail, isn't it? Um, but in other words, we just cracked on. We kept going, even though it was hard. That's the point of chapter 4. Of course, it makes the, uh, some will be very familiar with this, but one of um, a different war leader, Churchill's most misquoted speeches, I think, this one. Um, people, anyway, it doesn't matter. But in October 1941, uh, he went back to his old school, Harrow. Uh, he'd been there 10 months earlier. The headmaster had invited him, and he, he just enjoyed singing old school songs and going back to his old stomping ground. But uh, famously, in October 1941, uh, the, what, what are these misquoted speeches? 
but he put it in these terms. After the Battle of Britain, after the tide had somewhat been turned in the war, this is the lesson of the last year. Quite hard not to do a cod impression, isn't it? But anyway, I'll, I'll try and avoid it. Uh, but forgive me if I drift in. Uh, this is the, the lesson of the last year. Never give in. Uh, never give in. Never, never, never. Never in nothing. Great or small. Large or petty. Never give in. Except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. He stood alone a year ago, but there was no flinching. No thought of giving in. We now find ourselves in a position where I say we can be sure that we have only to persevere to conquer. And for all his flaws, and of course increasingly as time goes on, people identify many in Winston Churchill. Why was he fated? Why is he still often revered as the Great Britain? Because he persevered. And he helped a kingdom up against it to persevere. That's why. They just kept going. Nehemiah says, we just kept going. We kept going in building the kingdom of God. And so for you and me, what are we to do? Well, remember the Lord and continue the work. Personally, first of all, that is the Christian life. You remember what Jesus Christ has done for you. You remember that he's died so you could be forgiven, that he's died and risen again so you can have eternal life in heaven. He's done that. Remember what he has done for you and fight your sin. Do both. That's the Christian life. I mean, we'll only ever be in heaven. Anyone only gets to heaven because of what he has done. But we are responsible for living this Christian life here and now. As the writer to Hebrews puts it famously, chapter 12, 1 and 2, fix let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Consider him who endured such opposition so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him. Remember him. Remember the Lord. Nehemiah, remember the Lord and fight. That's the Christian life personally. Know what Christ has done for you and battle against sin, and keep going in serving him when you're tired. That's normal. That's true for all of us, personally. And then I guess it wants us corporately. Again, it's probably the last time I'll say this in, in Nehemiah, but just see the balance that's here between um, trust and activity. It's both. It's hard to get that right. For some of us who are activists, trust. Because if you think that the whole world depends upon you, that's an anxious life. If you think that everything in your career depends purely upon you, that's an anxious life. I was struck on Thursday, two, two, uh, two articles in the same paper on Thursday. You may even have them. So there's the, I mean, it was a very cheerful day. Um, article number one, why we're anxious all the time. Great. Uh, thanks for that. Which, and the point was, um, the world feels very unstable. That's why we're all anxious all the time. The world feels very unstable now, uh, economically, militarily, everything's just a lot more unstable. And we used to think, even five years ago, that we could control life a lot more. And now your average person realizes more than ever, sugar. 
I'm at the mercy of global circumstances. What I pay for sunflower oil depends upon what happens a million miles away. Oh my goodness, I can't control the price of oil personally. So that's just true. But if you think it's all down to you, golly, there's a cause of anxiety. Uh, and then allied, fear and self-loathing mark out the modern elite. Oh, golly. Uh, this was the FT had done a load of research and interviewed, uh, gone crazy on interviews in the city. Uh, and the point of the FT article was, our top bankers and lawyers are, quote, insecure overachievers, driven to their vast successes in international finance by doubt, self-loathing and fear of failure. Well, you may recognise that in your colleagues, hopefully not in yourself. But... Um, Wow. Fear. The article said, here is, we've gathered testimony from senior partners, chief executives, hedge funders, who confess to overwhelming, desolate anxiety. It can only ever be assuaged momentarily by obsessive compulsive pursuit of validation through another deal. And then they collapse into anguish and anxiety again. Maybe that's overstated for the sake of making an article, I don't know. But if you think everything depends upon you, that's a life of anxiety. And Nehemiah keeps on saying, trust the Lord, remember the Lord, pray to the Lord. God is with you. God is on your side. You've got to know that, otherwise you'd be pretty anxious. But the flip side is don't be lazy either. Don't be a lazy fatalist. Don't just adopt the position, well, if God wants something to happen, he'll make it happen. That's just not biblical. Yes, if God wants something to happen, he'll do it through you and through me. That's what we're to expect. Get involved. Make plans. Don't be a noble of Tekoa who says, no, I'm not getting involved. Others can do it. I've got my garden. I've got my wine to drink. I've got things to do. Others can be involved, but not me. Don't be aloof. Enjoy the blessing of uniting together for the greater cause of Jesus. And so the writer says, look, if you want to see, Nehemiah is saying, if you want to see the kingdom of God grow, if you want to see the kingdom of Jesus grow, well, remember him and fight. Trust God. Keep your powder dry. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. And don't grow weary in doing good. Fix your eyes upon him and plan and serve both. We've got to do both to see the kingdom of Jesus grow. <coughs> Let me lead us in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, even now as we share this meal together, this Lord's Supper, we need, first and foremost, always to fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who individually has won our salvation. He is the one who has guaranteed us heaven. And corporately, he is the one who is building his kingdom. But Father, as we fix our eyes upon him, would we not grow weary ourselves? Would we keep clinging to him? And would we not grow weary in building his kingdom? Help us to be those who rightly get this right. We trust and we act. We remember Christ, and we fight for his cause. We look to him, and we try to build his kingdom. Father, help us to be those
who have this balance rightly in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.